This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Blacks have made a, the greatest effort of any group I know of in, in all of history to overcome what is arguably the most profound oppression in human history. Shelby Steele, a black conservative author, columnist, and documentary filmmaker, says African Americans need to stop complaining about racism. I mean, it is amazing and for to sit and, and look under leaves to try to find some faint hint of racism is well, I'm going to be honest with you. You are people who do that are betraying their race. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Jamie Stockwell is a deputy editor with the New York Times National Desk. She also oversees a newsletter called Race Related. You know, what we want to do in, in Race Related is go beyond the conversations about black and white and tensions in, in those racial groups across America and also like look more deeply and with it's very nuanced and, and complex, but looking at the role of ethnicity and identity and how they all intersect. And while reporting on all that, the Times, like most major news outlets, outlets in the country is taking a hard look at how it's conducting itself. Our newsroom and when you look around other newsrooms across the country, that too few journalists of color are in position of authority. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. Well, partner, it's March 4th. And it is a really strange day in Washington. We had a similar day in January. It was January 7th that we recorded our show, and it was the day after the Capitol riot. Today is the day that Former President Donald Trump is supposed to return to Washington triumphantly. It's not going to happen. You and I know it. Everybody pretty much knows it. Maybe a few people don't. But there's all of this concern and tension here and um, security presence because of the concern about those who might think he would return and might try to make that happen. So it's a weird day. QAnon conspiracy stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? We don't have time for that. What we do have time for is one of the most... I think, engaging and interesting people that we could possibly be talking to right now. And her name is Jamie Stockwell. She's a deputy editor at the National Desk of the New York Times. And she is, one of her projects right now is called Race Relations. A little bit about Jamie is that she's from South Texas. um, And uh, most of her ancestors are from northern Mexico. And she spent a lot of summers and weekends at her grandparents' cattle ranch. She's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin and began her journalism career at the Washington Post, which 
she actually uh, was working at during the time she covered criminal justice and was a lead reporter on something that you and I both, Chris, know very well about. That was the Beltway sniper case in 2002. So, Jamie Stockwell, welcome to the program. Thank you both so much for having me. Wow, what an introduction. And is it just me or does that feel like yesterday? <laughs> yeah. Still, yeah. <laughs> the, the sniper, it was um, yeah. a three, difficult and very challenging three weeks for all of us uh, there in Washington, but um, still feels well, like yesterday. And, and you know what, to tie this in with what JJ said, that was domestic terrorism. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing you're talking about now, different different you know, circumstance, but, you know, basically the same thing. Everybody was afraid because they didn't know what was going to happen next. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it came a year after the uh, attacks on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center and after the about a year or two after the anthrax scares. And yet I think that residents of Washington just felt so much more frightened and um, and very nervous about the direction of the city, the country and their lives during that three week period, not knowing what the heck was going to happen, yeah. you know, just walking to, to pump gas. You know, people were zigzagging and it was a really frightening time. Yeah, I can recall when he was caught. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. I, and, and, and what's really interesting is I learned that he was staying at a YMCA overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that YMCA was across the street from where I lived, which is where I went to work out every day. <laughs> oh, my. Just talking about weirdness, you know. But anyway, March 4th, 2021, there is a lot of weirdness going on in Washington today. This newsletter project that you're doing is, I think, great. It's focused on race, identity, and culture. And that's pretty much what we do here on this program, Colors. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you, as Chris alluded to, there is just this weirdness that's going on in Washington right now over race, over Mm -hmm. uh, identity. Uh, and culture. I mean, the QAnon thing has just sort of fused all of these things together in a, just a strange way. And I want to get your thoughts on how all of this fits into American culture and how race-related will treat it. Right. No, that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, we, when we think about race relations in America, I mean, I hesitate to call it an awakening because we've been here before as a nation. Uh, the protests, the injustices, the brutality used to enforce it, the calls for reforms. But last summer, even to the giants of the civil rights era, like John Lewis, they said it felt different, that there was something else going on. And I think what makes it a little bit different and what we try to capture in race related and in our coverage uh, in the pages and, and online of New York Times is today we have a lot of young people who are more mindful and engaged in complex conversations about race who have grown up online and on social media, and they have these platforms that are elevating messages in an entirely different way. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see more nuanced conversations about race than ever before. Today, there are profound and provocative questions being asked and answered about privilege and colorism and intersectionality. And, you know, at least journalistically, I find this fascinating. Um, we, fa- we saw it last summer after Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the uprising that spread to more than 150 American cities, including many that had never had protests uh, within their city limits. We wrote about a little town in, in, uh, in Mississippi that had never had a single protest. And um, now there were all of these very deep conversations happening about race and about the history of racism in their community and also 
across the country. And it all played out against the backdrop of a pandemic that has disproportionately affected communities of color. More than a half million Americans have died. Millions have lost their jobs. It's laid bare and exposed these vast inequities and disparities in society. And then that, too, it's playing out against and has reinforced racial divisions in our country. Largely white police forces accused of bias and brutality in black, Latino and other communities of color. We're seeing more than black and white over the last year. There's been a surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans. It's something we at the Times have chronicled since last March. And, you know, the hatred and extremism, as you just recalled from January 6th at the Capitol, those are two subjects that we are very invested in covering and really exploring the root of it and um, the ways in which so many people have felt empowered to and emboldened um, to to, to voice their views. It's 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 a tough time in America (laughs) to be trying to cover it. So um, one one of the things exactly one of the things that I wanted to ask you about in leading this venture is, uh, as I read your bio a little earlier, you, uh, your ancestors are from northern Mexico, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's been a lot of injustices for decades, if not centuries, perpetrated against the Mexican people in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we spoke with someone several months back who talked about when New Mexico was actually Mexico, and, mm-hmm. you know, parts of this country was actually Mexico. So I'm wondering, how does your ancestry and your racial makeup, if you don't mind me asking you to tell mm-hmm. us about it, how does that factor into your your leadership and your view of what race-related needs to do to be effective? That's Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that. So I grew up in South Texas, right on the border, um, just a few miles from Mexico. And as you pointed out, a lot of my ancestors uh, came from northern Mexico. But also, we've been in Texas since before Texas was Texas. We were there when it was Mexico. We like to say we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. (laughs) And we are so deeply rooted in that part of Texas. Um, And I think that you know, what we want to do in in race related is go beyond the conversations about um, black and white and tensions in in those racial groups across America and also look look more deeply and with it's very nuanced and, and complex, but looking at the role of ethnicity and identity and how they all intersect. And my own story in in journalism is going to sound familiar to a lot of journalists of color. I can still remember the moment I looked around a newsroom and saw for the first time, very few people who look like me. (laughs) I was, I was 21 years old. I was an intern at the Houston Chronicle and everyone from my immediate supervisor to the highest ranking editors were white men. And the landscape was the same at several other news outlets where I interned and at the Washington post uh, where I began my career. I mean, there were Latinos in the newsroom to be sure, but none at the top and only a handful in management positions. And it was an, an isolating, unsettling feeling to scan a room and feel out of place. I'm sure that um, a lot of your listeners will be able to relate to that and and you too. And so I just vowed then as a young reporter that one day I'd become an editor and a newsroom leader and I would want to do whatever I could to help young Latinos so that they wouldn't feel alone. And um, that's something that we're really trying to do at the New York Times. It's something that I tried to do in my former newsroom in San Antonio, you know, hiring and promoting Latinos and ensuring that their voices are critical to meaningful and fair coverage. Because that, as you said, I mean, there, there's been mistreatment of Latinos in our history as a country. 
and certainly still happens and you still see it happening uh, unfolding across America and in Texas, which is majority non-white um, these days. And, and the, the changing demographics, I think, are a f- just a very important story to the story of America in 2021. And it's a big piece of our coverage on the national desk more broadly, but then also specifically in race related. Um, we want to be doing stories that take our readers beyond the typical stories they might see about race and really challenge their assumptions about what it means to be of mixed race and mixed ethnicity and how the two can intersect in this very multicultural country of ours. You know, I I was going to read this afterwards, JJ. I think this fits in right now if I can. Sure. Because I'd like Jamie to come in on this as well. It goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about um, the awakening about racism and talking about it and the, the country's uh, attention being focused last Memorial Day in particular, mm-hmm. and really has been since Ferguson and before that, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. But but it kind of covers all this. It's from a, a listener who's been listening to our podcast. His name is Mike. And Mike says, I am sick of everything being labeled as racist and everybody being labeled as a bigot. But as a white male over 50 and retired police officer, I check all the boxes. How do I prove a negative that I am not racist and never was? I cannot be held responsible for the sins of another. We must stop looking backwards, finding fault, assigning blame and move forward. If we don't stop moving, uh, if we don't stop looking backwards, we'll never move forward. I used to tell my coworkers, I don't care if the officer is purple with green hair. If they're honest and hardworking, I'll take a dozen. There are a lot of people like Mike and who feel like they're, they're being labeled as the bad guy when they're not. So mm-hmm. I know that, and I'm not saying this is, this is QAnon or anything like that. I don't, this guy I don't think is at all by any means, but I'm saying this is where some of that comes from, where it's like, he, in his opinion, has done nothing wrong. He's a good officer. He was not racist. And yet, because he's a white officer, something you kind of referred to, Jamie, mm-hmm. um, he's being, you know, th- people would see him as, well, you're, you know, you know, we know about the police and you got problems with black community and all that. A lot of them don't. Probably most mm-hmm. of them don't. So mm-hmm. what is your reaction to that? Well, you know, I covered um, when I was at The Washington Post, I for several years, I wrote about the Prince George's County Police Department. And, you know, that is a police force that at the time I was there was under a top to bottom review by the Department of Justice for alleged civil rights violations and then later entered into a consent decree and was a largely white police force in a largely black community. And there was a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. But I also knew a lot of police officers who worked really hard in the community and who were at community meetings and town halls and walking the beat. And, and back then there was a real emphasis too on, on walking the beat and getting to know residents. Um, and I think they did in, in many communities did a really good job. I, I think what we are seeing in this country is, and I did refer to it earlier as this awakening, but I think what, what is, what we need people to really recognize is, is the idea of privilege and the notion of privilege and be thinking through how as a a member of a police force or a member of any other group or industry, how their upbringing and their lives might look to somebody else and all of the different privileges that they have enjoyed um, 
and be able to use that to to better empathize and be compassionate with right. other communities. And, and, and I think, and that's one of the things that I've learned from doing this podcast. Um, and it was explained very well to me by uh, one of your former colleagues, Michelle Singletary, mm -hmm. uh, you probably knew from yes, the Yes, absolutely. It's great. And, you know, she said that, look, even though my family came here after the Civil War and were from the North and never had slaves or any of that, I have benefited from slavery because being a white person, I've been put in an advantageous position in a country, a lot of which was built by people who weren't paid for their Mm -hmm. their uh, labor. And I began to see it that way, that that is white privilege. However, to get back to Mike's uh, email, it doesn't mean that I'm bigoted or racist. Sure. I, in fact, I recognize the fact that I'm in a position that, that, that even JJ's not in, he's a very successful guy, but walking down the street, I'm white, he's black, and I'm going to be looked at differently than he is. And we, he and I've been talking about this for <laughs> 30 years yeah and it, you know it, yeah. it is and that is the white privilege thing so that's fine but it doesn't mean that i'm a bad guy because i'm treated uh, differently than he's treated and, that, yeah. and i think that's what mike is it's trying a, to say yeah, yeah and it's a tough question i mean you have a, a, i edited a story just as an example in, in at the end of last year um from not too far from where you guys are sitting a community in virginia where a young woman had recorded and uploaded a video of herself using a racial slur um after she got her driver's license and a classmate held onto that video and saved it until she had decided where she was going to go to college and then he posted it on social media mm. and it became a huge huge moment. Um, her scholarship was rescinded. She was uh, no longer going to attend the university that she had planned to attend. And it created this you know, moment in this community to really grapple with its history and its past. And this young man who did it, his father was a white police officer in their community. And he had a black, has a black mother and a white father. He asked his father, his father said to him, like, I'm not racist. I've never seen myself as racist. How do I go out in the community as a police officer? And everybody looks at me as if I am. And his son, you know, kind of threw the question back at him and said, have you ever, when driving, been pulled over and, um, and made to feel nervous? And he said, no. And he said, all right, well, have you ever walked into a store and had all eyes on you? And the dad said, no. And he said, OK, well, you need to like just think about those things and keep those things in the back of your mind. You're, you may not be racist, but always remember that, you know, you've been able to walk through this world without everybody looking at you or assuming the worst about you. Yeah. Um, and, and it but it, it, you're right. It's a very difficult question. Yeah. It's a difficult you know, it's topic. Not even, it's not even um, assuming the worst. It's just perhaps feeling um, feeling like they're in danger. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the perception, again, this conversation JJ and I have had over and over again, is that you're walking down the street, it's kind of dark, and, you know, there's one coming up one side of the street or a couple of young mm -hmm. black guys with the baggy pants and stuff, and coming up the other side of the street are a couple of white guys carrying briefcases. Which side are you going to feel more comfortable on? the guys with the suitcases may have guns and decide to rob you, but mm -hmm. you make a snap decision like that. And that is, it's not, it's not fair. And it is a form of uh, bias for sure, but that that's reality. But I, mean, I think a part people... of this, I think a part of this is what Michelle said in the beginning is not about you. And I think, I think this, this applies to the guy that wrote the letter. Right. You know, I mean, we get it. We understand what your concern is, but nobody 
we're not lumping you in, in this group. We, you can't lump everybody together. I think what is happening is people are talking generally, just like people were talking about defund the police. As I said to you mm-hmm. then, it was not a serious effort to take money away from police officers. It was designed to be something to start the conversation, a starting point. Um, and I think what Mike is getting at here, to your point, Mike, is I totally understand what you're saying. But no, if you aren't those things, then don't take this, don't take this to heart. That's that's not that's not you that people are talking about. Um, you know, this is a group of people, and people tend to lump people together, and we shouldn't do that. You know, uh, so that's my view. It's Mike well, should on both sides. Yeah, no. Well, nobody should be lumped together in any situation unless right, you want to be, right. unless you ask to be mm-hmm. or you want to be. Right. And so that's 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 my thought to Mike. Perfectly put. So that's very well put, Jamie. Um, talking about issues uh, with diversity, the New York Times has always been a cutting edge, at least in my lifetime, um, mm-hmm. um, um, a cutting edge newspaper. And now it's much, much more than a newspaper. It's a multimedia platform. And I recently noticed that it has undertaken this effort to become more diverse by taking a very intrusive look at itself mm-hmm. to figure out how it can be better, be more diverse. Can you? Are you at liberty to share with us anything uh, that's taken place in that process? Sure. Yeah, I can speak broadly about, you know, what we are doing here at The New York Times. Um, And as you've seen and and you've alluded to, and I wish that I could just put the link like in the air and people could click on it while listening. (laughs) But last month, the uh, the Times released this very comprehensive report about diversity, inclusion and equality that a lot of us in the newsroom read with optimism and hope. It's an honest assessment of the company's workplace culture. It lays out a concrete list of actions to transform that culture uh, where we are prioritizing people leadership, uh, wanting to build better systems and processes and elevate our news reports. Um, We are looking at everything from rewriting policies to establishing new teams to putting in place very rigorous accountability measures. Um, Over the last decade or so, the Times has really challenged itself to come up with long-term strategies to transform our business and our journalism. We had a report aimed at digital innovation. Uh, we had one that really looked at like how to deepen our relationship with readers and grow our subscribers. Uh, we, and like those reports, this one is gonna be very much a multi-year effort. Um, we published our findings because we wanted to be very transparent in how we view ourselves and where we want to go. And this is a really important moment for us. Um, We want to hold ourselves accountable. We release our diversity stats on an annual basis. The next report should be coming out pretty soon. It'll be this spring, so in in a couple of months maybe. Because we want the New York Times to be a place where everybody has the opportunity to do the best work of their careers. And as you referenced too, this is not unique to the Times. I mean, this is an urgent subject being discussed in newsrooms across the country. And Here at the Times, I'm part of a group of senior leaders working to diversify both the staff and our audience um, because we understand the path to reach readers begins inside of a newsroom um, and having these really thoughtful, difficult conversations about race and representation are really important, uh, particularly when we look around 
our newsroom and when you look around other newsrooms across the country, that too few journalists of color are in position of authority. And it's something that we are very much committed to changing. You know, the, the only um, side of that uh, coin is, the, so the New York Times, you know, considered to be one of the great newspapers, but a lot of people, generations uh, behind me, don't read newspapers anymore. So whatever you do, good for you, but it's not going to make any difference because, you know, young people don't read newspapers. They read blogs. They read social media. They maybe listen to podcasts. Um, they get their news elsewhere. They don't. A lot of them don't get it on radio anymore. A lot of them don't get it on television anymore. And by a big shot, long shot, uh, they don't get newspapers anymore. I live in the Tampa Bay area. The Tampa Bay Times used to be the St. Petersburg Times, one of the mm -hmm. best papers in the country. Well, they only print um, a paper edition twice a week now because they've lost a lot of revenue because not enough people are reading newspapers. So most days I read it on my iPad, which is, oh, I'm fine with it. I don't mind doing that. I can't tear out, you know, stories and stuff like I used to, but uh, I don't mind it. But I understand that the influence is going down. I've had a couple of letters to the editor published in the Tampa Bay Times, and um, I've had like two people comment on it. Well, there was a time that if you got a letter to the editor published in your local newspaper, especially a big, good one like this, like the Washington Post or the Tampa Bay Times or New York Times, lots of people see it. So I guess, Jamie, that's what I'm wondering is how much influence will the Times have going forward uh, to changing the mores in America when it comes to race? We reach millions of readers every single day, and we have millions of subscribers. And we also have a very successful um, daily podcast called The Daily with more than 4 million downloads a day. And a lot of that is a younger audience. We also have a uh, television show on Hulu called mm -hmm. The New York Times Presents, and that reaches a younger demographic. But a lot of our newsletters and our news coverage we are finding is reaching younger readers um, mm -hmm. who are more actively engaged and they want to be a part of the story of their communities and the future of our country. So I disagree in that. I really think that this industry and, you know, I'm not super young anymore, but I'm also, uh, I still have another two or so decades plus left in my career, I think. Um, and I am very optimistic about the future of our industry and in reaching younger people. I feel like there is more of a willingness today to pay for news than there was even just a decade ago. I think people are used to paying uh, for subscriptions like Spotify. Mm -hmm. A new subscription is just another one. And um, we are seeing a lot more engagement and a, even just looking at Twitter. I mean, the people who engage with our stories and share them and talk about them. So I think when it comes to race coverage, I mean, they younger people want us to be bolder. They want us to be more innovative in our presentation and our delivery of it. I think it also comes down to how stories are framed and how they're written. We want them to, obviously we, we need more voices in our coverage of, of communities of color yeah. for Latinos in particular. I'll talk about, you know, my community, we need more Latino voices and images beyond immigration beyond poverty, you know, more in-depth coverage of them. And I think when we do it in a way that feels like we are not writing for the typical uh, news consumer, or maybe not typical is the wrong word, but the, the more 
when you think of the stereotypical news consumer and you think of an older uh, white family <laughs> or white man, we need to be very conscientious in how we frame and deliver our stories so that they feel like they are being written for the communities we're, we're, we're capturing in our coverage and also that they are included as voices in our coverage. Yeah, um, and, so we're not talking at people. And here's a reason, here's a part of the reason why, and by the way, I agree completely with you. And I do disagree with this idea um, that, you know, you're going to struggle in the future as an industry or, or as an organization because of what young people do. We had a conversation recently with Shelby Steele a conservative mm-hmm. African-American writer, uh, filmmaker, etc. And uh, he and I kind of butted heads about this idea. Well, there's no kind of about it. I was going to say, there was no kind of. <laughs> I just flat out had to tell Mr. Steele, I disagree with you. He says that black folks should stop looking for things to complain about when it comes to discrimination. And my thought is this. Mm. Listen, um, people have stories to tell. People have their own unique uh, developments and, and things that take place in their lives. Telling them to stop talking about them is what got us where we are today, <laughs> what, mm-hmm. what got us in this problem today. You know, George Floyd pulled the lid off of something that had been so tightly kept on for decades mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, African-Americans and other people of color, once this lid was pulled off, were saying this is never going to go on again. And I think exactly what you said is the framing of things is really super important. And that can dictate the success of not just The New York Times, but any any outlet um, that's going to write about race heretofore. Because if you're going to write about it in a contained, closed, predicted and um, narrow uh, manner, then you're going to have a problem reaching more people. But if you're going to do it open, transparently, and, you know, in a way that's inviting, then, you know, the sky's the limit. Absolutely. We do a lot of call outs um, at the New York Times. We really want to hear from readers and we get a lot of feedback from younger readers who are very interested in and eager to help us understand particular topics or trends or issues and subjects. And I mean, I just want to go back to the last summer and what we saw and what I think is exciting for our country. And as journalists is, you know, we saw the outsized role that young people played in the election, in voter turnout, in community and grassroots organizations. And I think we saw across the country, all the way down to the municipal level, leaders who were challenged and questioned, and then uh, and in many cases, ousted and replaced by candidates who ran on platforms of reform and racial equity and equality. So I think that's a really important storyline that we're going to continue to see this year and beyond. And it's something that we are very invested in on the national desk. In, Do you in think that, you, that, that um, your uh, your work at The New York Times now, I'll concede that and you've said some very interesting things about uh, how to reach uh, young people. Um, are you reaching only the uh, progressive liberal young people or do you think conservative young people read the New York times to try to get an, another side? That's one of the other things I worry I, about is that mm-hmm. people seem to seek their news from a place huh, that yeah. is presented in a way right. to conform with their 
preset opinions, which is, of course, exactly the wrong thing to do, because mm-hmm. otherwise it's not news. I mean, that's just it's crazy to me that people are that way. But I know that's the way it is. I worry about that, too. And that's such a really important point. And I don't think we can emphasize it enough how important it is to to reach both uh, to reach all groups, all Americans. Um, one of my reporters covered a very conservative uh, conference in Washington, D.C. That, that happens every summer or most summers with young people. And I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm blanking on the name of it right now. But um, he went and he spent some time with a lot of very, you know, high school age conservatives and was surprised and came back to me and said, wow, so many of them have actually been reading some of our coverage. This was in 2018, summer of 2018, and then summer of 2019, um, before the pandemic. And we then also put out a call out to young conservatives uh, who are like part of like the young conservative groups on colleges and high schools to hear from them on a few topics, because we wanted to have it inform our, our reporting to a degree, but also just to better understand what some of the younger people were thinking and I was surprised at how many responded, uh, whether they just saw it on social and wanted to, to respond isn't, you know, I'm not sure. But I do think that's a role that is vital. Like we have to do better as an industry to reach younger people and help them make more informed decisions about their lives. Local journalism. I mean, I can't stress enough how important local journalism is uh, for that. But um I fear, too, that in this very polarized country that people are listening only to the people who share their opinions. And um, that's that it's a challenge to us as journalists. I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this, Jamie, you are totally on the right track with everything that you're Mm -hmm. doing. And a part of the reason I'm saying that that is, is some of it is a bit selfish because I happen to notice today when I was looking at the newsletter that you did a story about black farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. one of the people that you, was in that story. You just had an episode. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> one of the people that was in that story was my homeboy, John Boyd. Uh, <laughs> and great. I'm thinking, you know, this couldn't have been because of what we did. It had to be because of something they were working on. They were thinking so, mm-hmm. you know, very clearly we're thinking along the same lines. But I will say this to you. Um, sure. Different is not a dirty word. It never has been. It's refreshing. But mm-hmm. one of the problems with different is people are scared of it. And people throughout my entire lifetime have been scared of different. The, the, the large, a large majority of people are scared of different in certain contexts, mm-hmm. certainly when it comes to race and certainly when it comes to culture. But it is a refreshing thing that people... As you said during this conversation, Jamie, people are now awake to, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it That's is, right. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Well, I, I agree. And I think, you know, for race related and what we want is to really feel like a Times square in many ways. Like we really yep. want these great ideas to converge and like really important conversations to happen. And I would urge all of your listeners too, and, um, I feel funny saying this, but I've always wanted to say, you know, long time listener, uh, first time here on the show. But I think that, you know, any ideas that you guys have, anything that you want to see in our pages that you haven't seen in our newsletter that you haven't seen, we're always looking for fresh perspectives. We want to be lively and conversational and intimate and just be a place where 
people can get like really vibrant takes on race and ethnicity and identity. We, we have, we have a way to go, of course, and we're always looking to improve, but um, I would love your thoughts and everybody's thoughts on what we can do better. Well, Jamie, uh, you, I can you, guarantee you, great. I can guarantee you, Jamie, we will work with you on that. That's, that would be wonderful. I'd love it. Well, thank you for coming on. You've uh, you've been a great guest. You've been one of our best. Um, I, I really enjoyed. Really <laughs> thank enjoyed you so much. With you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, and I wish you both a great rest of the week and a good twenty twenty one. Thank you, Jamie. You're listening to Colors. My name is Sasha. I'm originally from South Korea. I work as a web content strategist in Seattle. Not everyone in my family speaks fluent English. My mother speaks with a heavy accent, and she doesn't know a lot of idioms like break a leg or that's a piece of cake. I can usually tell when she doesn't get something because she'll just smile silently with closed lips. Linguists say that it takes four times longer for an English speaker to learn an Asian language like Korean or Japanese than to learn another Romance language with shared Latin roots like French or Spanish. When my mother was working, she was an OBGYN in some of the neediest communities in the country. Her career moved us to places like Mount Bayou, Mississippi, that was founded by two former slaves, then to Spearman, Texas, a small town where high school football ruled, and then later to more cosmopolitan areas like Queens, New York. She helped thousands of women deliver babies into the world, guiding them through the most vulnerable time in their lives. But because she doesn't speak perfect English, she's often the target of racism. It really saddens me when I see other people make fun of my mother, thinking that she's stupid because she has an accent. I wish they knew her history and saw how much she had contributed to this society. One time, we encountered a group of men who were making ching-chong noises at her. I wanted to yell at them, Hey, that is not cool. Maybe my mother helped your wife. Maybe she even brought your child into this world. But the men were a lot bigger than us. So I just held my mother's hand and we walked swiftly away from them. My mother is 80 now, and I've been horrified by what people like her have been going through during this pandemic. It's awful that some people blame Asians for the coronavirus and they equate us with bats and disease. I hope my mother is okay. And I hope that whenever she goes out, people will somehow see the light inside of her instead of a virus that needs to be beaten. This is Colors. A dialogue on race in America. Well, Jamie was a wonderful guest, and that's one of the best conversations. I it's really funny because my wife is in the habit of on Saturdays, she goes for a walk in the evening and she listens to our latest podcast. And she came back after we had our interview with your your homeboy, as you call him, uh, Dr. Boyd, and she said, Oh man. That was one of the best ones you've ever had. I think she's going to like this one a lot, too. I think it's just a very interesting conversation. Yeah, you know, I know your wife listens religiously, and uh, she's very good, very discriminating when it comes to what podcasts sound like and how they operate, and she's very good at picking out good material. And, And I'm not just saying that because she's your wife, my friend, and, of course, our listener, but I'm saying she really does know how to listen to podcasts. And I can say for sure I've told you on a couple of occasions that the hits keep on coming. And I said that about Dr. Boyd in that podcast, but I've said it on a few occasions and I'm going to say it about Jamie Stockwell 
as well, because we have continued our work since we started last June. We've learned some things about the topics. We've learned some things more about the business and how we need to do this. And I think honestly, and this is not blowing our own horn, folks, it is simply we have learned a lot. And I think a lot of people recognize that. And I think Jamie Stockwell was one of those people. We uh, we may want to get uh, Michael Saltzman on from the um, he's the director of the Employment Policies Institute because he wrote a, a, a piece that I was reading and he was talking about how we seem now to be fixated on judging revered historical figures by their worst sins rather than their best contributions. And he's referring in this case to Dr. Seuss. And he says some of Dr. Seuss's early works were indeed racist. He drew on crude and offensive stereotypes in several drawings of blacks and Asian Americans. But like many Americans before him and since, Dr. Seuss changed. Cartoonists during World War II, Seuss often criticized isolationism, racism, anti-Semitism with the conviction and fervor lacking in most other American editorial page writers, period. So the point is that there are some schools, and I know in particular in, in Washington, D.C., where they want to take Dr. Seuss out of the schools because they say, oh, he has a racist past. And I think and this kind of refers again to Mike's letter. We, we have to realize that people can change that the the viewpoint that they held at some point in their life they realize wait a minute that was wrong i i i really don't think i was right about that and would in dr seuss's cases i mean he's a beloved american uh, writer i mean his books are are kids still read them all the time and the fact that maybe some of his earlier work was racist if he evolved he should be a praise for that and and not banned for it that that at least is how i see it and that again is back to what i said about mike's letter is that you cannot group people all together and you can't put them in a box and not let them escape um because of what you think you know but one thing i do have to bring up in relationship to this dr seuss situation i noticed that six of those books are no longer been going to be published but those six books are now at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. I, saw, I wondered why they were up there, too. And I, I kept seeing that thinking, what? How, <laughs> how did they how did uh, all the places you go or whatever it's called? Why is that all of a sudden up in the top? 10? Yeah. So but anyway, to the to the heart of what I wanted to say, we talked about this before when we talked about that Teddy Roosevelt statue in New York in front of the museum. Yes. Optics. Yes. Yes. It's optics, 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 optics. And today, optics is so very important to people because let's be straight about it. People don't dig deeper as a general practice today into situations or into people or into occurrences. They see what they see uh, and we're inundated. We're fire hosed by information from all sorts of platforms. So people miss important things like what you said was Dr. Seuss changing. And redemption, redemption is another key thing that I think is really important in our lives. And it should be because we've all made mistakes. We've all done really bad things on some level. um, But most of us have redeemed ourselves in some way, given the chance. Now, I'm not here to I'm not here to judge Dr. Seuss or anybody else, but I will say this. Optics do play a key role in this thing, and you can't discount what people see, think, and feel when they see those images in Dr. Seuss's book, but those folks 
the, the, the percentage of them that are listening today, I just hope you look at what Chris said about Dr. Seuss redeeming himself. I'm Chris Kaur, and I'm white. I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. And this is Colors. If you have any thoughts or comments or questions about the show or perhaps a topic you want to suggest or a guest, you can reach us at thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. That's thecolorspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. The British royal family's racism scandal. Kahindi Andrews is the author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Andrews is a professor of black studies at the Birmingham City University, and he says Meghan Markle's experience was not unique. And the real issue is, like, what does the monarchy mean? What does it represent? And, you know, for what it represents is really in popular culture like today a very direct connection to the british empire to colonialism to this kind of image of whiteness i mean that is what the royal family does so it shouldn't really be surprising um that that it was that that she had a racist racist experience while part of the family that's coming up in our next episode of colors well it's time to shut it down for another week and before we do that we say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Ari Isaacman, Bavakwa, Dimitri Sotis, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Ann Kaur, Gina Bazemore, Peggy Byard, Angelique Chong, Amara Walker, Joey Rivera, Greg Christian, Gretchen Soren, Jeffrey Marshner, retired General Jim Clapper, Adisa Hargett-Robinson, Fonda Mwangi, and for the music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And of course, thank you for everything, including taking some time to listen. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.